Welcome to the Potter's Roundtable, a monthly podcast where we share our passion for the ceramic arts and a collection of topics specific to potters. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Enjoy the show. Yeah, I went to a talk last night over in Frederick, um, and this was a Japanese potter, living national treasure, who came over to do a few workshops. And his English wasn't very good, so his son was doing all the translating for him. And he brought a few samples of his work with him, just as examples of the kind of work that he did, in addition to having a slideshow. So after the talk was over, and he had these, these pots on the front table that people were going up and examining, and I, and I picked up a tea bowl that I really liked, and I found that they were for sale. And so I took it over to his son, and I said, well, you know, is this for sale? And he said, yes. And I said, well, could you tell me how much it is? And he said, well, let me ask my father. So he went over and talked to his father for a minute. He came back, and he said... $5,000. So there's hope if you're interested in selling your pottery, you know. <laughs> Did you buy it? No, I didn't. I, I, I tried to keep my composure, and I said, that's a little beyond my budget, you know. Did you kind of want to hand it back? Well, all of a sudden, yeah, I, I, you know, I kind of walked over like this to him and said, how much is this, you know? <laughs> and then I was like, you know. <laughs> And of course, I would pick up a T-Bowl because that was also what he was known for. So he's a living national treasure, and he's known for his T-Bowls. And I just happened to pick up one that his son also said, oh, that's a really nice one. So all, I had everything working against me. I originally thought, you know, if it was, a, it was $100 or a few hundred dollars, I thought, okay, it would be nice to have it here, you know, because we're trying to also build up gradually a collection of pots that people can look at. So I thought that would be kind of fun. So I thought... So I was going to charge it to the studio, but I figured Dennis would never let me, you know, hear the end of that. So I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, what, I th- what I thought I'd do, I want to talk a little bit about critiquing your own pottery, and I purposely called the, pot, the, t- the talk Critiquing Your Own Pottery because I figured if I just said, let's talk about critiquing, nobody would come. Because at least it's been my experience in the past that people talk about critiquing, but when it actually comes to doing it, especially on their own work, all of a sudden people become very sensitive and shy and self, you know, they're not very self-confident. So I thought this way, the real purpose is things that you can do to, to look at your own pottery to make it better. So you don't have to worry about what somebody else thinks about it. Okay? So I guess, and one way to talk, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to start off, I'm going to talk a little bit about sort of the classic principles of design. I don't want to go into that too much, but I want to at least give you a little bit of background about classic design principles and what traditionally people have used to judge both two-dimensional and three-dimensional art. And then I'll go into the part that I'm gonna re- I really wanted to talk more about was how can you translate those into sort of usable suggestions? And I'm going to put the suggestions in the form of questions so that you'll, they'll, there'll be questions that you can ask yourself or you can, you can think to yourself about your own work, okay? And critique, so critiquing basically, just to, as an introduction, critiquing is really meant to be constructive criticism with the emphasis on constructive, okay? Um, the purpose of it is really to improve the quality of your own work. That's the whole point, really. And it involves recognizing, and this is, this is true whether you're looking at your own work or whether you are participating in a critique and you're critiquing somebody else's work. It involves recognizing your strengths and weaknesses. That's the whole point. So you look at a work, and if it's your own work, you can say, what could I do to, to improve the work? How could the work be improved? Um, and so basically, you would keep the good features and then try to improve or work on the weak ones. So a big part of this is then being able to look at a piece critically or analytically and say, 
well, what are the strong features? What are the features that are, that are positive? And what are the weaker features that I probably should work on? Okay? Um, so really, what you, one of the, another way to look at it is sort of educating your intuition. You, you don't have to, I, like to I, don't, I don't rely a whole lot on the formal rules, which we'll talk about, but a lot of it can be intuitive. And just you look at it, you know, something's wrong. There's something about this piece that I don't like or it doesn't work completely. And you don't necessarily have to know exactly all the, the logic behind it, but you can look at it and say, there's something wrong. So then the process would be, I'm going to look at it and say, okay, try to look at it and say, okay, well, what's wrong with it? What is, can, now can I do some analysis and say, well, what, is it too big? Is it too small? Is it the wrong color? Is it the wrong shape? What is it about it that bothers me? So it's like following through on your initial intuition. And, and people's intuition is usually pretty good. You'll look at something and say, there's something wrong with that, but I don't know what. So then this involves going a little further and saying, okay, let's figure out, let's try to figure out what is wrong with it so that I can change it. That's the idea. So an important part of this also is not just looking at something, but seeing it. Re- seeing what's really there, not just looking and saying, okay, yeah, I see it, but, but what, are you actually, what are you actually seeing when you look at it? Um, so as I mentioned, and, and this, is, this is actually, if you haven't done a lot of it before, it can be a difficult process to sort of look analytically at something and look beyond the idea of, oh, I like it or I don't like it, but is there something wrong? Is there something that bothers me about it? Or is there something, and we'll talk about some conventions, is there something that sort of violates some of these generally accepted conventions about the way pieces should be designed? Um, so anyway, so, but I'm going to, when, when we get to it, I'm going to, the, the, the comments I want to make or the suggestions are really in the form of questions that you can ask yourself or a way of looking at it and not so much the formal rules. But I did want to talk a little bit about the formal rules just as an introduction in case you haven't heard about them before. So there are, and people call them, you know, they're rules of design or whatever, however you want to title them. Um, but they're really, I, I guess I'd more prefer to think of as conventions about design. And frankly, I personally don't take them too seriously because if you, if you look at the history of art, for, for each period in art, there will be certain conventions that people followed. And when somebody totally broke the conventions, they didn't go, oh, it's terrible art. They said, oh, how creative, how innovative, how imaginative. <laughs> so these are like artificial rules that were not semi-artificial, you know, rules that were put out there. And then people purposely broke them, you know, so, which is, that's normal. So to me, I can't take the rules too seriously if when you break them, you're considered creative and innovative. You know, they're not hard and fast rules. But there are certain conventions that over the centuries for two-dimensional art and three-dimensional art have become generally accepted to be sort of good rules without, get, you know, without getting too detailed about it. So design, basically, the term design, I'll give you a definition. It's the arrangement of parts or elements in a space to accomplish a purpose. That's the definition of design when we call it. And I, d- design, I don't mean like a pattern, like a wallpaper pattern. Design, I mean the arrangement or the planning or the, or the, the overall arrangement. So the design of something is defined as the arrangement of elements or parts in a space to accomplish a purpose. And all of those parts of the definition are important because it, the point is that when you're, creating, when you're designing something, you're doing it for a reason. And the reason may simply be to create something beautiful. It, it doesn't have to have a, a practical function, but it has a purpose. You have a direction. You, it, it might be a functional piece, so it has a specific purpose. Or it might, again, it might, it might be to tell a story. It might be what's considered a narrative piece where you want this to, to have a message. And so the purpose is the message. But the point is, you're, you're creating this work of art, two-dimensional or three-dimensional. You're arranging the parts in a way to, to serve a purpose. So the, in terms of the terminology, 
the elements, when they call it elements of design, those are the parts. We'll talk about those in a minute. So you have elements, which are parts, and then you have the principles, which tells you how you arrange the parts. So I have, I have part, so I can look at anything and I can, like a chair, and I can say, well, there's a back, there's legs, there's seat, there's foot pads, and, and those, are the, those are the elements of the parts, and then they're arranged according to certain principles. And the principles might be function, they might be practical things, this thing has to work, or it might just be a beautiful arrangement. Okay? And again, if you have any questions or anything, you know, as we go along, you know, say something. Okay, so let's talk just briefly. Again, this is just this introduction. This is the form, sort of the traditional formal way that people talk about design. Frankly, also, it's, it, it hasn't been, I don't think there's been as much emphasis in design um, as in, in two dimen- and three-dimensional art as there has been traditionally in two-dimensional. Because what was considered serious art for a long period of time was mainly two-dimensional. Paintings, drawings, tapestries, this sort of thing. So I think it's only been you know, more recent times that we've started to accept ceramics as, as, a, as a, you know, a, a worthy form of art, and we've started to apply some of the same design principles or the design analysis to three-dimensional art that we have for a long time to two-dimensional art. So a lot of this is, is sort of terminology that has crossed over from looking at two-dimensional art, and now we're trying to apply it to three-dimensional. So, so these, there, there, are, there are basically, I've got five elements of design or the component parts that I'll talk about. These are just sort of different kinds of parts you can have. Well, one would be, the first one is the form, which would be the three-dimensional term, or the shape in the two-dimensional term, the shape of the parts. What is the form? What's the, what's the form? And you can have, what's the form of the, of the overall work of art? And what's the form of the individual pieces? That's, um, and, and, and the reason why this is important, I mean, first, part of it is just naming. What is it? Is it, is it a circle? Is it a sphere? In a sphere? Is it a cylinder? What is the form? What is the basic form? And the other thing is, that goes along with this is different shapes, because we're, we're, you know, we're, we're human, different shapes have different implications and different qualities when we look at them. So certain forms or shapes in two dimension can have, for instance, be active or passive. I can have a form that looks very passive and stationary and stable, or I can have a form, for instance, that looks very active. And so part of this goes along with what are you trying to convey with the work? What do you want the work to be saying? What do you want, what do you want the, the viewer that's looking at the work to see? Do they want to see? Are you trying to present something that looks calm and stable and passive? Or are you trying to create something that suggests energy and movement and force? So the, the, it's not just what the shape is, but what does the shape suggest? And there are different kinds of forms also, along with what I just said. I mean, there are sort of organic forms. So you had the whole, for instance, the Art Nouveau art movement, where all of the forms were basically related to nature and very organic in nature. Okay? And you can have very geometric forms, a lot of, a lot of hard angles, hard lines, sharp lines. And again, there's a, there's a different psychological connotation to when you're looking at something that's very organically with tendrils and all the curves, the sinuous curves of, of Art Nouveau, versus something hard geometric lines, for example. So they have different, they have, they have different suggestions. And there's also, there are, with forms, one of, the, one of the concepts that I'll mention later also is called visual weight. And the idea is when you look at something, and it doesn't matter whether it's two dimensions or not, is that what impact does that have you? What weight or impact does the seeing that have on you? And certain things have more visual weight than others. They, you notice them more. They have, they're more impactful. So that's, part, that's also related to the shape. 
is, is how much visual weight does that have? How much do, are you impacted by looking at it? Do you, do you barely notice it or do you can't avoid not noticing it? And then along with that also is the idea of positive and negative spaces. A negative space in art is, is basically where there isn't anything. So for instance, if I look at a mug, the hole in the handle is a negative space. And so, and again, this, this doesn't matter whether it's two-dimensional or three-dimensional, negative spaces are important because you don't, you, the, and the balance between the negative space and the positive space is important. So for instance, if I have a mug with an enormous handle on it, it can look weird, partially because I've got this big open hole in the handle, and it dwarfs the size of the mug itself. So just the proportion of the hole in the handle to the body of the mug is important. And that's, that's, that's the proportion of the positive and negative space of looking at the piece. So the, 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 what the actual form or, and, and the terminology in, in three-dimensional, we call it a form. In two-dimensional, we call it a shape. Um, but the, but the, not just what the form is, but all the connotations of the form and, the thing, and what the form suggests are important. Because again, when you're creating a work of art, and, and ceramics is art, we don't have to go into that art versus craft thing. Um, but, well, I heard I a, well, well, I heard a great, well, I heard a great definition of that, is, and they said that craft becomes art when the person starts innovating. So that if you're adding your personality, if you're making changes and you're innovating and you're not just accepting, and this is true especially in, in, in you know, older cultures where th traditions are passed on, if you take it, something that's given to you and you change it a little bit or you modify it or you personalize it a little bit, then that's, that's, that, that's one of the definitions or one way to think of it is art. Because you're not just passing it along rotely, you're modifying it, you're thinking about it, you're making changes to it. And the changes might be related to you personally or to the time, the environment that you're living in, whatever, but you're modifying it. Okay, so that, that's form or shape. The second element of design is considered to be texture. And again, this can be 2D or 3D. So this can, and the, the weird thing is this can be an actual texture, like on, in, in sculpture or in pottery, where you actually have a textured surface of some kind. You have raised lines or indentations. But it can also be suggested texture. You can suggest a texture just with patterns on the surface. So for instance, like polka dots even. Polka dots on a surface make you almost think of either little bumps or little holes or something. You see that, not necessarily as a flat surface, especially depending on like if it's black on white or white on black. So it may, it may be a texture that your eyes suggest that it's there, but it's not really there. Or it could actually be a texture, especially on ceramics, where it could be carved or dented or sculpted or something like that. So texture is important. And the, other th and the, the feature about what texture does or can do for you is it activates the surface. It, 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 it makes the surface more interesting. It makes the surface come alive by having something going on on the surface instead of just being blank. So that's another element of the design. And another one of the classic elements of design is called line or lines. And it's literally that. It's are there lines somehow on the surface or on the edge of the piece? And lines, lines define, for one thing, lines define shapes and edges. So the outline of a piece is a line. So again, lines have certain characteristics. So for instance, a jagged line has different suggestions and different connotations than a smoothly curving line. It implies a different message. So the outline, if, instead of looking at the, not just the shape, but the outline, what, what line does the outline of the form trace tells you something. And the, the lines can suggest movement, for example, or they can suggest moods, like, smooth, like a jagged line, like, like, a, like a lightning stroke, 
versus lightning strike versus just a smoothly curving line can suggest very different moods. And, and again, you know, ex express or part of what the pot is or the, the work of art is saying. Is the line straight or curved? They have different connotations, different suggestive meanings. Is it thin versus wide? What's the quality of the line? Is it a solid, like let's say you're painting, you're painting on a pot, you're decorating a pot, and you create a solid band of color, or instead you do it like with a sumi brush, where you do like Japanese characters, where you get like a broken line and it's kind of patchy and streaky. The same width line, but if it's solid versus this sort of streaky and patchy and where you can see the individual brush marks, has very different meaning or very different suggestions. So just with a line and the width and whether it's curved, there's a lot that, you, that you, you're saying with, 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 the, with the shape and the form of the line. And the fourth, the fourth element of design are marks. And this is, this is similar to texture, but these aren't necessarily, these don't have to be actual texture. These are just marks on a surface, like a design on a surface, for example. And again, they activate, the, they activate the surface. They can activate the surface rather than just a blank space. And the last element is color, which is really important. The last element. These are the parts that you would, that you would use. You'd combine these parts to make a work. So, so you have color. So you have, and just some, again, some related definitions. The hue of a color is the actual color, red, yellow, blue, whatever it is. The, I'm gonna, I'll just, the terms are hue, value, saturation, and temperature. So the hue is considered the actual color. What is it? Red, green, what is it? The value is how light or dark it is. The saturation of a color is how pure or how dilute it is. So pink, for instance, is a, di is a diluted red. So pink is a less saturated red. It's been diluted, basically, like pastels. And finally, the temperature, is it a warm, is what we associate with a warm color or a cool color? Like reds and oranges and yellows are generally considered to be warm colors, and greens and blues are considered to be cool colors. So again, all of these are, are projecting or translating into meaning in terms of when you look at them. We interpret them. And we generally, being human, we generally, we have a sort of a common civilization, a common background, so we generally interpret them in a similar way. But this isn't necessarily true for different cultures. Different cultures, you know, translate things in different ways. But at least these are the, these, this, this is all the language of color. There's a lot of language that you can use, just inherent in color. So those are the basic parts that you can think of. What it can, and again, I should mention also, if you look at, I've got a couple of references I'll give you later if you're interested in reading further about this. Not everybody agrees on what they are. If you look at different references, you may, somebody may, these are five. Somebody may have seven elements of design. Somebody may have four. Sometimes people put something in the principles that really is an element or the vice versa. So this, these aren't hard and fast. These are just, this is sort of a fairly common accepted definition, but it's by no means, you know, it's by no means the only one. As I say, and I've read other books where I go, wait a minute, this person has eight elements of design. You know, and so, okay, if that's the way they see it, that's fine. Okay, so those are the parts. So now how do we put them together? And so you use the, what are called the design principles to put these parts together. And the design principles are really rules for organization. How do you organize the parts? Or, or how can you analyze, when you look at the thing, how, are the, how can you analyze the way they were organized? And I have, let me see here, how many do I have here? I have, like, I have seven of them that we'll talk about briefly. 
because I don't want to, again, I don't want to overburden you with this. Because this, and, and part of this is when you read through, if you read books on this subject, you go like, well, how in the world do I use that? What do I do with it? And so what I've tried to do is translate some of that later on into questions that you can ask that use, that refer to these principles or refer to these things, but you're not saying, okay, I've got this rule. What do, you know, what do I do with it? Okay. Okay. So the first one, the first design principle is, is placement of the elements. The location for one thing. So if I, and again, it doesn't matter two-dimensional or three-dimensional. So for instance, if I have certain feature on a, on a work of art, where is it located? Is it at the center? Is it toward the edges? Is it, um, where is it? Where it is on, on the work of art? And again, all of these have, have connotations. For instance, if you have something in the, in the dead center, like a bullseye, that's generally interpreted to be a very static design. Because it's just, it, it doesn't invite your eye to move around. It's, it's very, it's very it's sort of dead. On the other hand, if you have a work of art where there's nothing in the center, that also is not necessarily good because you tend to see a hole. You see everything else arranged around and almost in, like you'll look at it and go, well, how come there isn't something in the middle? There ought to be something there. So part of it is, part of what we'll see with a lot of this is, is achieving a balance. You don't necessarily want only dead center but you also don't necessarily want to completely avoid the center. So if I have, let's say I have a round form, let's say a vase form, like it looks like a little sphere, like a cannonball, I don't necessarily want to put a circle of slip or color right on the center and the side, because when I look at it, it doesn't, it doesn't move. Nothing ha- it just, you look at it and it's just dead. And I should mention that one of the, one of the, the features of really good art, and what, this is one of the sort of common accepted ideas, is that you want the viewer's eye to move around you want the person, to make the work interesting, you want the viewer to explore the work. And so you want them to look at it, and, and if, you can see the, if you can analyze the whole thing and see the whole work of art with just a glance, then it's not very interesting. You look at it and you look away, okay, I've seen all there is to see. So you want to provide, you want to provide a way for the, the, the person to look at it and analyze it and, and coax their eye to move around and look at it. And if you just have one dot or something in the middle, that's it, they look at it and they're done. So part of this is also is tr- trying to get the viewer to look at the work of art and look at one thing and then maybe notice something else and then maybe notice something else and, 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 look, and spend more time looking at it rather than just a quick glance where they, they can take it all in in one quick glance. So, the, so for instance, as I say, so at the cent- we talk about the center and the edge. The center is, 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 can be very static, um, but if you, don't, if you don't have anything in the center can, and, and you obviously have stuff all around the edge, it looks a little weird also because you sort of intuitively say, well, I just, there's a hole in the middle of this piece. Also, the, now the, and, but now the other extreme is the edges. The edge of something can also be very powerful location, um, like, like toward the edge, just whether, again, two-dimensional, three-dimensional, if it's toward the edge of something. And part of the edge's location, this is where culture comes in, in the Western civilizations, Let's say, let's, 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 you know, if I'm looking at something, and let's say for now it is two-dimensional, we, t- we tend to look, the upper left is the most powerful location for edges because that's the way we read. And so we intuitively, when, if, you, if, I had a, if, I had, if I have a poster or anything, that I, let's, or, just, or, or, or just a two-dimensional silhouette, you tend to look upper left, and things in the upper left are, are rated mentally more important because of the way we read in the Western cultures. Again, this would be different in other cultures, but because of the reading, upper left is considered a very powerful location. So upper, so upper, upper corners, upper left, lower right, 
again, this is a cultural bias because of, of, of other associations in our culture. And so different locations on the edges or corners of things have different meanings for, in different cultures, different strengths. Along, also as part of, so that's, that's the location as far as the placement. The other part of, lo, of placement is orientation. How are, the, how are these pieces or parts oriented? So for instance, if you end up with horizontal lines, if you, again, looking at something, and you have a lot of sort of horizontal lines or horizontal structures, that tends to suggest stability or groundedness or gravity. They look like, like static. They look like they're, they're, they're solid in place. And that's, that's not necessarily good or bad. That's just, that's just the way we, we tend as humans to interpret them. Whereas vertical lines and vertical forms tend to suggest more energy and growth because we think of plants, plants growing up, so tall forms, tall vase forms or whatever, we tend to think of more as energy or growth associated with them. And diagonal lines are even considered to be more energetic than vertical lines. Just Again, this is just kind of the psychology of when you look at it. You tend to associate them um, as being even more energetic. So if you have a pot that's, that's low and wide, it tends to suggest stability and, and, maybe, and gravity and, and it not, no, not a movement. You have a vertical form and it tends to suggest upward movement, growth, and especially diagonal lines tend to suggest a lot of activity. They're probably the most energetic or what are diagonal lines. So just the placement, again, can say a lot of the, diff of the elements. The, the, the second design principle is the proportion of the parts. What if I have if when I look at when I look at a painting or a piece of an artwork or a sculpture, and I can see different parts to it, like whether it's a figure with a head, torso, legs, or whether it's a whether it's a teapot with spout and a knob on the handle, is what are their proportions? Are they one to one? Are they two to one? Are they something uneven? And generally, even the, the lower ratios, like one to one, two to one, are considered very stable and because they're very familiar, but they're also boring, basically. So in general, for potters, we want to try to avoid things like one-to-one -one and one-to-two ratios, which means like if you have a pot, you don't want to put a line across the middle and divide it into two even parts. Or you don't want to divide it into a part where, where you know, again, with something, because it's, it's too familiar, there's nothing interesting about it. So you want to try to find uneven rate, uneven proportions of things that don't, when you look at it, you go, oh, that's, that cuts the piece in half. Okay, so uneven ratios tend to be more important. And there's one ratio, which you probably heard of called the golden ratio, which is equal to about 1.62, roughly. It goes on and on. It's one of those numbers that goes on and on forever, and you can't round it off. It just, you know, like, it just keeps going in decimal points. And the golden ratio, and it's really interesting because this also is very common in nature. And this is one of those, and the reason why they call it, it's, it has a lot of different names, but it's called the golden ratio because... For one thing, people tend, you tend to intuitively like it. They've done psychological tests where they've shown people, and you can, you can think about it. I'll show you, like, I'll do a quick sketch of it. This is a ratio of parts that occurs very frequently in nature. And so one of the theories is, and I don't know that they've ever proved it, but one of the theories is that we're so used to seeing it, at least we were in the past when we were more closely connected with nature. We saw it in plants, we saw it in trees, was that intuitively, we liked it. We were comfortable with it. And, this, and they've done psychology tests where they've made rectangles. This is, this is divided into the golden ratio, and I'll explain it in a minute. But they've done tests in the past where they've presented um, people with just pictures of rectangles and, they, and with, a, with a line dividing them. And they just said, which one do you like the best? And invariably, 
they prefer the one with the golden ratio. They don't tell them anything about it, just say which one sort of appeals to you the most. And they have different patterns, like different colors or whatever, but they're looking for the division. And invariably, people, people somehow are drawn toward the golden ratio. And the gold, what the golden ratio is, is that the, the ratio of sizes of the whole piece to this piece is the same as this piece is to that piece. That's the golden ratio. Yeah, the ratio, the proportion in sizes of this whole rectangle to this rectangle is, is the same as this rectangle is to that rectangle. And that proportion is about 1.62. And this shows up a lot, for instance, in plants, like at the spacing of the leaves on the plant. Um, and you've probably heard of the, there's a thing called the, 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 the logarithmic spiral. There's a spiral that occurs incredibly common in nature, and it looks kind of like that. It occurs in, in shells in particular, occurs in the growth pattern of plants. Well, the golden ratio is involved with, with that spiral also. And so this is a very common feature in nature. The spacing of leaves, it, it, it's involved with, for instance, how the seeds are arranged in a sunflower head. That involves this, this spiral and the golden ratio. So the, the, for, throughout history... Artists have been using this golden ratio in their work in the, in the proportion of the parts because it was because of this association that it's, it's something that people like. It, you're comfortable with it. You, you're drawn toward it. So in addition, this is, this is certainly an uneven ratio, but so part of, well, art, artists have used this traditionally a lot because it's a, it's a, they know it's, a, it's a, a ratio or proportion that people will like. You're drawn toward it. But just in general... It's a good idea that everything doesn't have to be the golden ratio, but it's a good idea to just avoid whole dimensions, you know, whole proportions. So if you, can do, if you break something in parts and you do it like in two-sevenths or four-ninths or something, but don't do it in halves. Thirds, and then people say, well, what about a third? Well, a third is better than a half, and, but quarters is too... Quarter, even, again, this is like even numbers, are too, they're too easy to spot. So you don't want to divide something in quarters. A third is not too bad, but avoid halves, avoid quarters... Um, and then when you get into higher proportions, then you don't, see, you don't see them as immediately, so they're okay. But again, it's just like, for instance, again, if I was making something, I would not want to put a line right around the middle. I, if I wanted to divide it, you know, I'd want to pick some point up here maybe or some point down here that, that when I looked at it, I had to study it for a minute because it wasn't an obvious half or an obvious quarter. It just makes it more interesting. Okay, so, that's, so, purport, so you have the placement of the elements is the first one which is location and orientation. The second one is the proportion of the parts. The third one is the balance. And that, by that I mean the visual balance. And so part of what this includes is symmetry. What's the symmetry of a piece? For instance, when you look at it, is, it, is, it, is the left-hand side a mirror image of the right-hand side? Or is the top a mirror image of the bottom? That's, that's, this is twofold symmetry or mirror symmetry. Um, Symmetry tends to be, if something is completely symmetrical, again, it tends to be very static. There's nothing good or bad about it. It's just, it, that's just, that's the connotation. Um, if it's asymmetrical, it tends to be more dynamic. And there are all different sort of subcategories that we won't go into here about asymmetry. But there are different ways of looking at something to see whether, is it the same on both sides, or is the top the bottom is the same, or are they slightly different? Um, and there are, there are a lot of different variations in that where you can have it slightly asymmetric, but still ba- it looks balanced to the eye. So it, it doesn't have to be, it can be partially symmetrical. 
and all different, it doesn't have to be completely asymmetric, where totally random, where nothing resembles anything, but it can also be partially symmetrical. The fourth, the fourth um, principle is unity, and this is a really important one. Actually, there are two features here, what are called unity and variety. And unity means that when you look at the, the, the piece, when you look at the work of art, it, it all holds together. All the parts seem to be related in some way, and they all look like they belong. Variety is kind of the other extreme where you don't want it to be too uniform or it won't be very interesting. So really what you're looking for is a balance between unity, which makes it look ordered, it makes it look organized, and variety, which makes it look interesting. So if you have it look, if it's too, if, it's, if, you, if you use order to make it, to achieve unity, it can just be boring, nothing's happening. And if you have too much going on in the piece, too much variety, it can be just confusing, and there's no, and nothing, and it doesn't relate. All the, you know, you've got so, much, so many things happening that it doesn't seem to hold together. So you're, really looking, you're looking for some kind of a balance between that. You want to make it interesting. You want to make it look like the pieces come together, but, not, you know, but, not be, but still be interesting. And this includes things like you want the unity of the features. So, for instance, on a teapot, you don't want a spout where the form of the spout is so wildly different than the form of the handle that they, don't, they look like they don't belong in the same pot, for example. You want them somehow, the curves of the spout and the curves of the handle, somehow to relate to one another. They're different, obviously, because they're different pieces. But you still want them to, to you want your eye to see that they relate to one another. Um, and you also want, especially now that we're talking about three-dimensional forms, you want the surface to fit in or have unity with the, with the form as a whole. I don't want to have a form that seems to have a surface that doesn't seem to go with the If I have a, a let's say if I have a form with, with beautiful sinuous curves, I don't necessarily want to have a whole lot of angular, jagged decoration on the surface that seems to fight with this, what otherwise would be this beautiful, sinuous, curved form. So again, I want, I want, I want, I want there to be unity between the overall, the overall arrangement of the parts. And the unity, there are a number of things here that we can, I'm just going to list them briefly, but there are a number of, of things that we can, we can do to achieve unity. One is proportion. So I can have, I can have, I can have things, features that are roughly related to another in size in the same way, looking throughout the piece. So, for instance, I wouldn't want to have an enormous spout on a teapot with a little tiny handle. Even if the curves match, there's something wrong with the proportion there. That's what they don't seem to fit. Um, you, you can do what's called grouping or repetition of, of the elements. This is the idea of this. The idea of this is, is a motif. And this is a very common thing in, in ceramics. It's what's called a motif. And it's a design idea that you repeat throughout the work. And so I might have, let's say, I might, I might have a design where maybe I use a stamp on, let's say, I'm making a platter or something like that. And maybe I have a large design in the center of the bottom, somehow, of the bottom of the platter. Well then, and if I have handles on the tray of the platter, I might have a smaller version of that same design on the ends of the handles, or as a texture on the handles, so that when I look over the piece, this is where the unity comes in, I see that the same pattern is repeated in different sizes throughout, throughout the work. And, that's the, and that, so this is the idea of a motif. I've picked a design pattern or a design idea, and I'm repeating it throughout the piece. In different, and, 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 that, and that also ties the, the work together. 
Because when I look at the work, I see that same rep- that same idea scattered throughout the work, and it brings the work to, relates the work together. Another another way you can achieve this is by what's called pattern or rhythm and movement, and this involves again pattern is sort of similar to that, but like do I have do I have lines? Like, like, you know, if I take for instance like a serrated rib and I do wiggly lines on things and I create a certain rhythm or, or waviness to the line, do I repeat that same waviness, that same repetition somewhere else on the piece? And maybe, maybe for instance, maybe I, have, I, you know, I, I twist the rim of a piece and so I create a wave on the rim. Do I repeat that same, that same sort of wave maybe with a design on the bottom? <coughs> so that again, I can see, and that relates. I look at it and I see, oh, look at that. The, cur- the, the waviness of the rim <coughs> is picked up with the waviness of the, of the the slip design, for example, on the bottom. And again, that, that, that ties the whole piece together. Um, the other thing that, another thing to talk about is contrast or emphasis. And by that I mean, are there, are there features of the work that, that contrast strongly with one another? Does something stand out or not? Or does everything, when you look at it, does nothing in particular stand out? And there are a couple of important points here. When you talk about emphasis, or, or con- generally on, on any work of art, you want some kind of what's called a focal point. You want something that is sort of like a, a prominent feature that people are going to notice. You don't want to create something that looks like wallpaper. I mean, the, the classic idea of wallpaper is there's, there's nothing particular. You just see this endless pattern, and there's no one point you tend to look at, which can be kind of boring. So the idea about what a work of art is, like this, like we're talking about, is you want something, a strong feature, or something that you want people to notice that relates to the purpose of the work. So maybe it is the spout on a teapot, because the, the purpose of the teapot is, is serving or pouring. So maybe you want the person to notice that, that it's a really strong, important, that this is, the minute they look at it, they say, this is a pouring vessel because of the, this unique feature of the, the pouring spout. So you do want a focal point but you also don't want to be, that to be the only thing they notice. So there's a, there's a, a concept called, you want a, what's called a hierarchy of emphasis. And by that means, you have maybe one important point that people to look at, and then you have a couple of others that are not quite as dominant, but they're still focal points. They're sort of like second order focal points that people will notice those next. And then they'll note, and you may even have a third level where people notice those next. And again, what this does is this invites the, the eye to look around, to find things. You want the, you want the, 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 the observer to, to explore the work and not just, again, not just look at it and go, yeah, I've seen it. So if you have, they, they might notice, let's say on this teapot example, they might notice the spout and then they notice, oh, well, look, the thumb rest on the handle is a miniature version of the spout. So that's another sort of little focal point. It's not as strong as the spout is, but it, it relates to it, and it's, it's still something that it stands out, they notice it. And then you might notice that, you know, look, the curve on the feet also picks up the same curve that I've got on the spout. They're smaller, so I've got this large spout, I've got a, I've got a thumb rest or a curve in the back of the handle, and smaller feet that all relate to one another. So your eye goes spout, handle, feet. And by that, you've, gotten, you've, you've, you've made the eye move around in the piece. And again, it makes the work more interesting. But it also ties them together because the form of all these parts is related. Okay, and the, so the fifth, that's, that's unity and variety, which we're trying to get a balance of on the piece. Um, the, ne- the next one is complexity. And I'm, I'm not going to talk about this a whole lot, but the point is there's a point where less is more. Or the old expression, gilding the lily, 
you can have too much on a piece. Uh, I knew, a, I knew a, a guy that I knew used to make pots, and he made little, little teacups and bowls, and he did every possible design technique you can do on each bowl, and it was just way too much. I mean, he had slip decoration, he had, he had neriyagi, he had carved rims, he had different overlapping glazes, and you looked at it, and the, part of it was, you didn't know what to look at first, and nothing stood out. Now, if they had been sort of a hierarchy, it might have been better, but everything was kind of like equal importance. And so you didn't know, you, there was nothing, you know, so you looked at it and it was almost like, I don't even want to bother to look at it because there was nothing, it was almost like too much work to look at it and nothing, you couldn't focus on anything. So there's such a thing for complexity is yes, you want it to be interesting, but it can be too complex. There can be too much going on. We hope you're enjoying the show. Please take a moment to leave a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps new listeners find the show. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates as new episodes are released. And if you'd like to support the video and podcast production of the Potter's Roundtable, become a patron. Go to patreon.com and search for the Potter's Roundtable. Your support will help us achieve our goal of creating a digital library spanning the ceramic arts for use by educators and artists alike. Thank you for your support. Now let's get back to the show. Another one, that the, the, sixth, the sixth principle is I'm calling scale and context. And by context, I mean with the surroundings. And this is this probably, there, there are two ways that I, I think this applies to. Um, scale, I think, applies maybe more to sculpture and that, what that means is scale relation to the setting for the work of art. What is, wherever this, whatever this piece is going to be seen, how does it relate to its environment? And therefore, is it an appropriate scale? It can also relate to, I mean, pieces where, for instance, there's a message like a political statement or something. But in other words, if you're trying to say something with a work, it can be, for example, too small, and it, and it sort of doesn't have the impact. Let's say, you, let's say you make, like Robert Arneson, I don't know whether you're familiar with that, his work, and he did a lot of sort of political commentary. And so if he was doing a political commentary, let's say on the Vietnam War, and he does something this big, it's not going to have much impact. So the scale, in that case, it could be exactly the same, but the scale of the work was important to convey what he wanted to convey. It had to be big enough to make an impact on you. Okay. The other thing is, when I say context, is that um, I saw a good example of this where um, there was an artist that was making dinnerware, and the whole idea was to relate the dinnerware to, and she was making dinnerware or planning to make dinnerware for customers, like custom dinnerware. And it was a good idea that she wanted to relate the design of the dinnerware to the setting in which the customer was going to use it. So she was taking architectural features from their house and their dining room and their, and their, and their taste and their furniture and building it into the dinnerware so that it wasn't, it wasn't copying it by any means, but you could see it was a consistent style. So that when they were serving, and this was meant to be like fairly formal, you know, nice dinnerware, when they were serving at, at a table, it related to the surroundings. That isn't necessarily always true, but in that case, the dinnerware was a really nice example. It was a nice example of that. And so, so it's something to think about. So, th- and this was this was commission work. So she would she'd go into the people's houses, um, take photographs of the house, look at their their sort of sense of style, their sense of design, and then try to include certain and even color schemes if they you know that maybe they had bright colors and maybe they like subdued colors or earth tones and work that into the so that the 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 dinnerware could stand on its own, but it also related to their house and their and their and where they were going to be using it. And a good, an, an, another example of that might be, for example, um, in the Japanese tea ceremony or in Japanese, in Japanese surroundings, a lot of times 
a single vase of flowers will be displayed as part of the Japanese tea ceremony or in, Jap- or in Japanese homes. And so it's important that the style of the vase, for example, is consistent with, with its surroundings. So that it isn't just, pl- it looks like it belongs there, in other words. It re- somehow relates to the surroundings. And the last, the last one I have here for the principle is the meaning or the purpose of the work. And so the real point here is that, depending on what it is, the parts and, must relate to the function. If it's a functional, whatever the, whatever the meaning is, all the parts must, must relate to it. So that if it's, a, if it's a teapot, you don't want to have a handle that looks like it's, or that it looks or is uncomfortable to pick up. So the, so the point is that regardless of what the, uh, the, the purpose of the work is, and it could be, they call it like narrative. In other words, are you trying to just sort of like tell a story or suggest a story? Is it a strictly functional piece? Um, is, it, is it a political commentary? Whatever, is it just an emotional piece? Um, is it just something where you're just trying to get somebody to look at and say, you know, that, that just is pure beauty. Um, but, you need, but all the parts and the work as a whole also have to all contribute to that. You don't, especially you don't want something that sort of fights with it. You don't want a feature that seems to contradict whatever the purpose is, because then the viewer is going to get confused and the message won't be clear. All right, so let's go on to, oh, just an introduction to critiques, and then we'll go on to the questions I was talking about. So critiques, when we talk about a critique, they generally involve three aspects of the work when you're, when you're, when you're talking about critiquing a work. The composition, the technique, and the concept. So the composition is what we were just talking about. The elements of the design and the principles of design, as well as the functional aspects of the design. If it's it's something to be functioned, how are the parts assembled? How are they put together? What does it look like? That's what we were just talking about. So that's the composition aspect of it. The technique is literally that, is the the technical proficiency. How was it made? Is it refined or is it sloppy? Are there any obvious defects in the way it was made? What's the attention to detail? How thoroughly has the artist paid attention to the whole work? We'll talk more about this when we talk about comments. But, so is it, is it well made, basically? Does the, does the artist look like they know what they're doing? Do they, do they, did they master the material and the technique? And finally, the, con, it, the, the last one, the concept, it's the concept or the goal or the purpose. Just what is it? And so when you're, if you're critiquing a work, you're looking at it, and, you, and if somebody says, well, like I say, for instance, a teapot, if you have a teapot, and it's really meant to be a functional teapot, but you can see obvious features about it that aren't going to work, then it's not, satisfying, it's, it's not satisfying its concept or its goal very well. Or if somebody's trying to make a political commentary with a sculpture or a work, and you look at it, and you can't figure out for the life of you what it's supposed to say, especially if they're confusing signals, then that's not, that's not working. It's not working. <laughs> Okay, so we'll talk about we'll talk about these these three, but but now in the form of questions. These aren't in any particular order. Um, these are just sort of. But I say so. These are these are ways that I think you can you can talk about. You know, you can look at your work. The ways to sort of analyze your your own work. And it's, you'd be doing the same thing if you were critiquing somebody else's. But this way, you can do it in, this, in the privacy of your own home, okay, <laughs> or in the in you know in your dimly lit basement, okay. <laughs> So the first, the first one I have here is, is and this is on, so we're going to talk about composition first. First one is, do all the parts work together? We talked about all these things related to parts, but do they all work together? Are there, when you look at the piece, whatever it is, 
is does it look like they're all part of of the whole? Because I don't want, even though we were talking about emphasis before, when I look at something, I don't want to just see one part. I really want to see the whole. And yes, I may want to, I want to emphasize certain parts, but I still don't want to, when I look at a teapot, only see the spout because I can't get my eye off the spout and I don't see anything else. So, and this is the unity versus variety also. So I, I, want, I, want to, I want something that looks consistent where all the parts seem to fit. They seem to belong together. And that includes things like the form, the surface also. Does the surface seem to match it? Does the color even sort of go with it? If I have a... Uh, and, and again, this is where people violate the rules and they go, oh, how creative. But I mean, for instance, if I have, let's say I have a, a very oriental style teapot with you know, smooth curves, very simple design, and I paint it in bright red and white stripes that doesn't really go, nothing wrong with it, but it doesn't really go with what the form is saying. Now, now maybe you're trying to do that on purpose. Maybe you're purposely trying to violate that rule, and so that's your statement. I'm violating, the, I'm violating this design principle by having this, this conflicting surface design with the form. Um, and, that's, and then, so, these, so some of this is, you know, as with a lot of this, a lot of this is very subjective. But normally, you wouldn't, unless you're purposely trying to make that, that, that counterculture statement, you, you would want a surface, a surface color or something that goes with the, the main design elements of the piece. Second, sec, another way to look at this is, does the design move your eye around and not stop it in one place? Does the design make you want to ex- make the viewer explore the whole piece and not just look at it and sort of see the bullseye in the center or something like that? Or does it also move it off the piece? You, could have, you, you might have a strong diagonal line, which when, when your eye, and your eye tends to naturally follow lines. I mean, this is, this is why lines are so fascinating, because your eye naturally sort of traces them. Well, you don't want a line on a piece that leads your eye off the piece, because you're trying to keep the person looking at the piece. So you don't necessarily want, you don't necessarily want some, a feature so strong that they go, oh, look at that, and their eye doesn't come back to the, their eye doesn't come back to the work, okay? So again, this is where, you know, there's a, there's a balance to it, okay? Um, but we want, the, we want the viewer to explore the work. And along with this, so is there a focal point? Um, and again, I'm not saying there, you know, I'm not giving you answers to these things. These are just questions. But to look at the work, is there a focal point? Have you emphasized something that you want the person to see, some special feature that maybe, maybe it's something, an aspect you're good at. Maybe you, you've done a design, a surface carving, or scraffito or something. But have you created some feature to, to, to invite the viewer to notice this in particular? Okay, um, and overall, just is the work interesting? Is it memorable? If it if it's so simple and so you know, again, where somebody can look at it with one glance, are they ever going to even remember that they saw it? Okay, and then next thing is what's and then so the, and these are maybe these are obvious questions, but this is I think this is a, a way to, to if you put them in a form of questions, it forces you to think about it. So what's the nature of the symmetry? Maybe you're not thinking symmetry, but when you look at it, maybe you know when and you stand back and you get and you might go, you know, that's really very symmetric, and then you can say, well, am I satisfied with that? Is that what I'm trying to is that what I'm trying to say? Because I've ended up with something which is really very symmetric. And that has certain, as we talked about, it has certain connotations. It, it implies stability. It's not very active. There's nothing wrong with that. But is that what you wanted? And is it consistent with all the other features of the piece? Or is it asymmetric? You know. Okay. So just ask the question, and and then uh, and and think about you know 
from that point of view, is it symmetric? Do I care? Okay. Um, or next thing is, are there whole divisions or even divisions, or have I, avo have I avoided any even divisions? So do I have lines that cut it evenly in half, or things like that? And again, part of making it interesting. Another one that we talked about is, is the scale of the work appropriate for whatever, and, and this may be more or less important in some cases, but is the scale, should it be, does it, if, you know, is it, if it's functional, then the scale is very important. You know, if you're making a T-bowl or something like that, then the scale is very important. It needs to be a certain size to have a certain function. Like, you know, is a teapot the size of a, of a, of a, of a you know, a, a golf ball really functional? If, you know, or is it for even one cup or something like that? So is the scale important, or if it's just an emotional response, does it have the impact that you want it to have? The next one is, is a really interesting, and, and um, uh, Ruby alluded to this a little bit earlier, something called the near miss. And by this, this is an important, comp, this is an important idea. Are there, I asked the question, are there any near misses? And by a near miss, this is a design feature that doesn't quite look like it's, it's done well, so it looks like you didn't quite do it. So in other words, if you meant to divide something, let's forget the, the, the half, but let's say you meant to divide something in half and you didn't quite divide it in half, enough so that your eye notices it, it's sort of, it bothers you. It's not obviously intentionally not in perfect halves. It looks like you tried to divide it in half, but you didn't quite get it. And so that's a, that's a near miss. Any feature that looks sort of unintentionally bad is a near miss. And, it, and it could, be, it could be the shape, but it looks like when the person looks at it, they say, you know, I think they were trying to get that handle on the center, on the end, but it's slightly off. It isn't, it isn't centered on the end. Or the, the rim comes up, and one rim is obviously a little lower, and it's like, yeah, something happened. Maybe it was an accident in the kiln, or maybe it was intentional. But they didn't quite balance the form when you can see it was meant to be balanced. That's a near miss. And you really want to avoid, avoid those. So that part of this is, if you're going to do something, make, it make, it, make a definite statement. If you're going to make, divide it in half, then divide it in half and make sure you really do hit a half. If it's not going to be in half, make sure when you look at it, it's obviously not a half. It may be close to a half, but you can say, okay, I can look at that and see that person meant to be close to a half, but not a half. It's not so close that it's kind of bothers you. Like, oh, did they mean it or did they not mean it? So part of this is being, is being, is being forceful in what you do. Be, you know, be definite in what you do. Don't be, don't be sort of wishy-washy. Okay, um, and along with that, it's kind of a continuation. Are there, when you look at a piece, are there any weak or unintentional features? Are there any features? And again, you have to sort of, maybe when you're still making it, it's kind of hard to analyze it, but you have to sort of step back from it and then look at it critically and pretend it's not yours, pretend it's somebody else or something. And then say, okay, is there something about this that just looks weak? Meaning it's undersized or it's, it's not emphasized, like it should be emphasized, but it's not enough. Or are there unintentional features? Are there things, for instance, when the, um, when, let's say, you're, again, you're firing something with feet and the feet bend a little bit in the firing, so it slumps a little bit. And so now the whole piece is not sitting square. It's, it has slumped a little bit because the feet bent. And when you look at the piece, you can tell that was not intentional. You weren't, this was not intended to sit slightly tilted. It happened, regardless of whether you did it or it happened in the kiln. And you can see that, no, that's not right. That's an unintentional feature. It's, an, it's a weak feature. 
because it, it looks like you've got an otherwise very symmetrical form and it's sitting slightly crooked. Okay? Another, thing, another question to ask yourself, and this is all about composition, is what does the form suggest? Not what you wanted it to do, but what it, when you look at it, what does it actually suggest to do? And this is where sometimes it, it does help to ask somebody else, what do you, you know, how do you react to this, if that's an important thing? So is it active or passive? When you look at it, does it, does it look like, does it suggest energy and movement or, or not? And again, don't, don't include what you wanted it to be. Look at the piece objectively and say, what is it actually, if I inter- pretend you never saw it before, and this is what I found, like, from my, I know this is from my own work. I put it away for a while. I can't critique it right after it comes out of the kiln. I'll pack it away because I have, I have all these expectations that I'm hoping, and, and, I, and, I, and if it doesn't come out exactly like I wanted to, I tend to pretend that it did anyway. So, <laughs> so I pack it away, and then I'll bring it out later where I've gotten a little more distance, and then I can look at it and say, you know, that really didn't work right or something like that. So a little separation helps. So what does the form suggest? Is it active or is it passive? Is it top-heavy or bottom-heavy? When I look at it now objectively, I might go, you know, it really came out looking a little bot- more bottom heavy than I, than I had hoped for, something like that. Part of this, what does the form suggest is, is it, is it f- more formal or is it informal and loose? More, more. So is it, do you want, did you want, again, forget about what you wanted, but when you look at it, do you get the impression that this is kind of a more formal, which maybe means symmetrical form, or is it a little more casual, looser form? And that's not good or bad, it's just that recognize what it is. And then you can say, then you can look at it and say, well, you know, it, it came out a little more rigid looking, and then this is where you can modify your technique or change your design, because you say, you know, I had this image in my mind of what I wanted to make, and now that I look at it, it, ends, it looks more rigid and formal than, than I, what I was hoping. And you can say, okay, well, then what do I need to do? You know, if that's the direction you work, what do I need to do to change that in the future? How would I modify this to loosen it up a little bit, for instance, if that's what I wanted? And along with part, so part of this sort of as an overall thing, and this is a little bit repetitious, but it's another way of saying this, what's working and what's not? What is about the piece that, and this is what I mentioned earlier, like when we talked about what are the good features that if I make this again, I want to keep. I, I really like this, this lip that I created, or I really like these handles. And, and whereas this, I want to change the bottom. I don't like the angle that I created by the foot ring, for example. So what's working and what's not? And so along with that, you have the question of, well, what are alternatives for each design feature? If I, if I, what, what, what could I do differently? If, let's say, I don't like the way the feet came out on something, um, and I'm not, but, so then to really think about it hard, say, okay, well, how else could I have done the feet? What, if everything else is the same, what alternative designs could I have done for the feet? And so this is where it takes a little thought and a little experimentation, a little imagination to say, okay, I'm going, to, I'm going to sort of play, maybe I'll take some clay and I'll make some little maquettes, little models of pieces, or make some sketches, but what, can I, what could I have done differently? This is where you're, now you're sort of breaking new ground. You're not just looking at, you've gone past just analyzing, you're saying, okay, I've recognized the feature I want to change, now how do I do it? What could I have done differently? Along with this, what's working, what's not, which is, um, which is different for three-dimensional versus two-dimensional, Three-dimensional pieces have to work from all sides, meaning they have to look good from every direction. Two-dimensional art is great. You look at it, and it only has to look good in two dimensions. A good three-dimensional piece has to look good from every possible direction. The top, the bottom, the left, the right, every possible view. So 
this is really complicating it because with a teapot, it's not just looking at the profile. I want it to look good when I look at it with the handle facing me, or I want it to look good with the spout facing me, or I want to turn it over and look at the foot ring, and I want to look down at the foot ring, and I want to see how the foot ring is placed relative to the other pieces. So it has to work in every direction. And then along with this overview is, another question is, is it overstated or overdone? Have I overdone it? Have I put in, you know, I have all these great ideas for surface decoration and features, and I've put them all on one pot. Um, In which case, maybe say, okay, next time I'm going to make 10 pots and incorporate all these ideas rather than put the 10 ideas on one pot. Um, Another question, when you look at it, and this, again, this is a broad one, is that, for any, any ceramic work, are the outlines smooth and continuous curves without having any breaks? So in other words, I don't, this, this, is, this can be whether it, let's say you're throwing something on the wheel. This could be either something that you're throwing um, in one piece, or it especially applies if you're throwing pieces and you're assembling pieces. So you wouldn't want to make a large form, let's say like this, where because you've assembled it in pieces, you can see that there's a break in the curve there where there was a joint. Okay, and this this could be a, this could be single thrown, you know, thrown in one piece or especially assembled. But your eye is is very good, very sensitive to looking at curves and tracing curves, and you can see a little wiggle on a line. You may not even know in your head what you're seeing, but a slight variation, just a little hiccup on a line, your eye your eye notices that. So it's really important that, and it doesn't matter whether they're straight lines, and you don't want a straight line with a little jog in it like that. You see that that becomes really that's a focal point almost. So it's really important when you're looking at your work and you're turning it around to see whether are all the curves that you've created smooth. Or if you have a change in curve, is the, is the transition smooth? So if I'm, if I'm going something with a neck and I'm coming down like this, do I have a smooth transition between this curve and this curve, or do I have some kind of a little hiccup in there? Because again, your eye, when you look at it, your eye is going to be tracing these lines, and you don't want something to stop your eye. And your eye will stop. Your eye will see this little the little irregularity, and it'll sort of hang up on it. And they want the eye to sort of smoothly flow around and follow all the lines on the piece. So are the, are the curves smooth and continuous without any breaks or little jogs in them? Is it really important? So it's important to sort of stand back and just look at the outline, maybe turn the piece, if it, let's say it's a wheel-thrown piece, and just turn the piece and look at the outline and see whether the curves all the way from the lip down the outside of the body, right down into the foot ring to the base. Are they smooth and continuous curves, or are they little hiccups? And I meant I touched on this earlier, but another point is: are all the shapes? This is related to the the, um, the near misses. Are all the shapes and the marks confident? In other words, if you're going to do a surface deck, if you're going to do some kind of a, a stamp or some kind of a mark, make it. And this is, where, this is where practice comes in. And this is, frankly, one of the things that you, 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 you notice with a lot of sort of professional or very advanced work. You look at it, and you can tell the person knew what they were doing. So any mark or gesture or anything wasn't hesitant. It doesn't look like, like, like oh, and, and you, where it looks like they tried to do it, they just did it. And it could be just a mark, or it could be the shape of a curve. But everything looked confident. And so that, that's an important point also, is that you want all the shapes and all the marks. When you do something, do it. Either do it or don't do it, but don't sort of, don't sort of half do it. Because, you, again, you, it's easy to spot. You look at it and you go, oh, it didn't quite do it. 
And this is one of the things you really notice on very professional and very advanced work, is that everything looks confident. It looks like they know what they're doing. You may not like it. That's a different question. You may not, or it may not suit your taste. But it looks, it, it's confidently done. And the last, the last point I have along this is just, this is kind of looking at it overall, is does the work look well thought out? Does it look highly developed? And, and which is part of the same thing. So in other words, when you look at it, when you look at the work, does it look like some thought went into it? And this is another feature of, if you want to call it professional or very advanced work, is that people have thought about it and, and planned it, and maybe they've done multiple versions of the same piece, and, or they have an idea, let's say, for a handle, and they didn't just put the first handle on the piece that they, they thought of. They might have done 25 handles and, and explored handles to see which one worked with that particular form the best. So that when you look at it, they've really settled on one that really suits all the criteria, that, that all these other things we talked about, it's the right size, it's the right shape, the curves match. So they've put a lot of thought into it. And you can look at a piece and you can see that, yes, yeah, somebody, has, somebody has put some thought into this piece and everything sort of works. And so that's part of it also just overall. Does the, does, the, does the work look well thought out? Does it look like people have you know, put some planning and thought into it? Okay, so now, we, so now we'll talk a little bit about technical proficiency. So this is just, so overall, just what's the quality, when you look at the work, what's the quality of the craftsmanship? Are there defects? Did the artist pay attention, meaning you, pay attention to, to detail? What's the finishing like? Is it well finished? And along with that, an important part of it is, this is, to me, I think is really important, is do all the aspects of the work reflect the same level of attention? So don't make a beautiful you know, thrown piece and then skimp on trimming the foot ring or trimming the base. And you can tell, you look at it and say, oh, it's a really nicely made piece, but they rush through the foot ring. So to me, almost, it's more important to have consistent level of attention to the work, even if it's not the greatest, most refined, at least it's consistent. This goes back to uniformity. Because again, if I, if I look at something where part of the work is finished to a certain level and another part isn't, I immediately, it, 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 that's part of the uniformity. It doesn't hang together. And I also think, well, why didn't they, if they did that, if they put all that attention here, why didn't they put all that attention here? So in addition to the quality of the craftsmanship, it's also important to have it uniform. Pay, you want to pay the same amount of attention to everything you do on the piece. If you're going to do it quickly, then do it quickly overall. But, but at least make it so that you don't see parts that look like they were neglected. And then in particular, on, with respect to foot rings, um, and foot rings, I'm assuming, are going to be mostly on functional pieces, um, are, they, are they too big? Are they too small? Are they in the right location? I mean, if, for instance, I mean, just on functional pieces, you don't want foot rings, let's say, on bowls or things that are too far in if they're going to be for serving or functional work, so that if you have some heavy food in the bowl, like mashed potatoes, and somebody digs a spoon into it, it's going to tip the bowl over. So the, the foot rings need to be located with, with the function in mind. They can't be too big. They can't be too small. You don't want an enormous just size foot ring because then it looks, in addition to the function, it looks oversized. We're talking about like focal points. It becomes a focal point. And unless, unless you've got some fantastic design or some reason to call the, the, the eye, the attention to the foot ring, it needs to be there, but you don't want it to necessarily stand out above everything else. So it, it needs to, the, the, the shape, I mean, the diameter needs to be right. The height, the size needs to be right, um, and uh, and the location is right. And on most on most containers, the foot ring actually also, in addition to 
Visually, it elevates the one of the one of the purposes of foot ring is to elevate the piece and make it not look so grounded. So if I have a flat bottom bowl or flat bottom plate, it tends to look earthbound. And so one of the purposes of a foot ring is to elevate it, put it on this little mini pedestal, and it makes the whole piece look lighter. It raises it up off the bottom. Rather, if it's just sitting on a flat bottom, it tends to look heavier, it tends to look more grounded. But in addition, there's a structural aspect to a foot ring in terms of the firing. Is that so if I have a bowl? Like this, and I'm, and you know how in, when you fire clay during the firing, the clay actually gets soft, right? During the firing, and it can sag. So one of the purposes is I have to support the weight on a bowl front. I have to support the weight of the rim. Well, if I if I put the the if I put the foot ring in too far, the weight of the ring, the weight of the is not supported, and the and the this can slump, and I end up with a bowl that does sort of that. The wall the walls slump down. If I put it too far out, then the bowl looks too heavy and I'm not supporting the bottom. Then the bottom can drop. So the, the, as a general rule, what I want is, and, and this can be violated, but in general, I want the foot ring under where the base, where the wall meets the base. As a general, as a general. Like, and you can look at most pieces and say, well, the wall goes down to here and the, and the bottom starts here. Where that transition occurs is roughly where you want the foot ring. Because I don't want it too, I want it far enough out to support the rim, but not too far out where it's not supporting the bottom. And so this is where, when the weight is coming down, this is where the weight is coming down, the weight of the, the, the wall is coming down, and I want it right there to support the weight of the wall. So that it's, un, it's sort of under the wall, but it's also supporting the bottom. And this, gets, this is not so important on small pieces, but you start getting big bowls and really large forms, and then the location of the foot ring becomes really important, in addition to just visually, structurally becomes really important. And, I, and you can look at that, I mean, and, that's, and, also, and you've probably seen this on bowls, where you get the hump in the bottom of the bowl, there'll be a hump here, like that. And part of that's trimming, but part of that is also is because when it was thrown, there was, the, the clay wasn't left in the right place, and the clay slumped. Another, another technical aspect is when you're looking at your pieces, are the wall thicknesses uniform? Ideally, you'd like to have the same wall thickness of a piece everywhere in the piece. So to me, at least, uniform is almost more important than is it too thick. I mean, if it's too thick, it's going to be heavy, but at least, at least make it uniform, and then you can, you can strive for, for, you know, for thickness later on. If you, you know, let's say you're learning to throw, and you tend to throw you know, thick wall. Everybody tends to throw thick wall pieces. But it's a good idea to at least strive for making uniform wall pieces, and then with time, you can, you can, as, you, as your skills progress, you can make them you know, thinner and make them appropriate thickness. And, and, th- and part of this is visual. Part of this is weight. Um, so that, for instance, if I pick up a bowl and the wall thickness is a lot heavier on the bottom, thicker on the bottom, the, bottom, the bowl's going to feel bottom heavy. And again, for functional pottery, we're not just looking at it. You're not just looking at the design of the pattern. You're handling it. So you don't want to, part, part of having a uniform wall thickness is the, the physical balance of the piece. You don't want to pick it up and go, wow, that bowl is really heavy on the bottom. Or that, or that pitcher or that teapot is, is heavy on the bottom even before I put any tea in it. Okay, so, so that's part of it. But the other part of it is, is, the, is the processing, is you want to have uniform wall thickness for drying and firing. Because drying, parts that, that, depending on how the parts are drying and depending on, as you know, the parts are firing, 
I want the part to dry uniformly so that it shrinks uniformly, and I want it to, I want it to fire uniformly so that it shrinks uniformly. So just the, the, the practical aspects, I want to have uniform wall thickness in terms of drying and firing. Another thing to look at is, from technical proficiency, is you don't want to leave any sharp edges. And there's a, there's a sort of a general rule in, or a, a thing that happens, an occurrence that happens, is that when you're making something and the clay is green or it's dry and you have a sharp edge, sharp edges tend to get sharper as they're drying. Because if you think about it, here's an edge that I have in, a, in, a, in pottery. Well, if this is an edge, when the clay shrinks, it's going to shrink like this. This corner isn't necessarily going to pull back that much, but it's going to tend to shrink like that. So sharp edges get sharper as the clay dries and is fired. So you, you want to avoid sharp edges, so this relates to finishing. And also, you want, also want to avoid rough surfaces. And I guess the way I think about that is, the work is not finished when it comes out of the kiln. You should at least be sanding the bottoms of the, the foot rings, sanding the bottoms of the pieces, so that on functional work especially, so that when you handle it, you pick it up, you don't, you don't have a rough foot ring that sort of scrapes across the palm of your hand when you pick up a mug or you pick up a bowl. Um, and for that, the, by the way, the best thing I recommend is aluminum oxide sandpaper for sanding. You don't want to use regular sandpaper because the sand in the regular sandpaper is about the same hardness as the ceramic and it's not going to do much sanding. Aluminum oxide is a lot harder than the ceramic, um, but it also doesn't leave a mark on the ceramic. If you use silicon carbide sandpaper, it'll leave black marks on the ceramic and you'll get black dust that will get into the surface and sometimes you can't clean it out. So aluminum oxide, when, it, when you grind it up into a powder, it's white and so it won't leave any marks on it. And you can buy it at any hardware store. Um, you can buy it. Aluminum oxide. It might have a brand name, like I might call it Alox or something like that, but it'll be aluminum oxide sand. We have some that, in the studio here. Dennis just bought us two more packs of the stuff. But you want to, I found it's the best stuff to use, but you don't want it. Silicon carbide is black, and when you rub it on, then the fine texture creates that black dust, and it's almost impossible to get at it. So when you look at the foot ring, especially on porcelain, you can see these black marks. The aluminum oxide is great. It's a lot harder than the, than the, than the fired ceramic is, so it efficiently will, will do the smoothing. You don't have to do a lot. So, but when, it come, when a piece comes out of the kiln, it is not done. It needs to be, it needs to be, you need to pay attention, are there any rough spots that need to be smoothed off? Is the foot, are, there, are the corners of the foot, if you haven't trimmed the foot ring or smoothed the edges of the foot ring, now's the time to sand the edges of the bottom of the foot ring so that you don't have this sort of sharp edge in your hand. Because again, at least functional work is meant to be handled. And even if it's not, even if it's sculptural, you want a, something that's just, or decoration, you don't want to have somebody put it on their, on the piano and then they move it and scratch the piano or something like that. You know, so it, to me, that's just part of the professionalism is finishing the work. Is that, is that, okay, now I've got this piece that just came out of the canal and I'm handling it. Are there any rough spots? Or is there anything I need to do to it to, fit, to really finish it? Okay, so another thing, and this relates also, I mentioned the finishing, but another, maybe another way to say it is be consistent with your technique. So that when you look, again, this is part of when, when I look at the work, I can see that the, the person has, has paid the same attention or the same kind of attention technique overall. So they didn't, when they, if they, when they were shaping the rim or maybe or doing some carving on a bowl, let's say, they did a really nice, smooth finishing, but then when they did the foot ring, it was kind of rough. And if that's your intention, then make it very obvious that you didn't want the foot ring, you wanted the foot ring to be rough. This, is, this gets into the near miss, is that if you wanted a contrast between 
the, 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 the surface on the foot ring, and I just did that on some bowls recently where I trimmed the foot ring and, I perp- and it was a very groggy clay, and I purposely left it really rough because I wanted that to contrast with the body of the pot, but I wanted to make sure that it was very obvious that it was intentional, that it didn't look at it and go, oh, they didn't do quite the same job on the bottom. So make, if, make consistent, but also make it intentional so that you can see that something was an intentional feature, not just overlooked. And for functional work, again, we've mentioned this several different ways, but make sure it's functional. Is it comfortable to handle? Um, Are the lips on mug, for example, or a drinking vessel, are they comfortable where your mouth or your lip hangs over them? You don't want angular, you don't want a sharp line on lip. Is it comfortable to use? Is the handle actually comfortable in the hand? Is the, is the form stable? When I set it, like with a teapot, when I set it down, does it, does it rock or does it tend to stay down? So the point is, if it's functional, make sure it really is functional, and all the parts do what they're supposed to do. When, you, when, it, pours, when it pours, does it dribble? Or have you made a spout that, that pours without dripping and without, without dribbling? I've seen an awful lot of teapots that were sold as functional teapots, and you pour them, and then the last of the tea rolls down the front of the pot. Or a pitcher, especially pitchers that are poor, that can't don't pour for beans, because you go to pour them and the, it either gushes out and then when you let go it dribbles down the front of the pitcher. So it looks nice with flowers in it, but not with not with you know lemonade. And I guess and the other thing is, as I mentioned, as far as comfortable, is what's the overall balance of the piece, especially functional, so that when I pick up a piece a pitcher, if I imagine I've got this pitcher full of liquid. Is the placement of the handle such that I can comfortably balance the weight of all the, of all the, the liquid in the pitcher? Or is it sort of, do I feel like I almost need a second hand to hold the pitcher because the handle, the location of the handle isn't right or the shape of the handle isn't right? Or if I have a teapot, again, is the teapot handle in a position where when it's full of tea, I can comfortably carry it and not feel like I have to support it with a second hand? Or even coffee mugs. I've seen coffee mugs where you, if you don't have, you don't have sort of almost grasp it, it tends to hang down on your finger. You know, instead of staying upright, it tends to want to roll down. So it just is the balance of the piece right. And then, so then, last, a few comments about the, the concept or the goal, when you think about it. Is, and we talked about this before, but just look at the pork and say, you know, what is, the, what is the purpose of the work? What are you trying to say? What are you trying to do? If it's functional, then is it functional? Um, but is it successful? That's the, whole, that's the point, is look at the work and say, this is what I had in mind for the piece. Have I achieved what I had in mind? Do pitchers pour well? Are the mugs comfortable to hold? Um, or if I was looking for something that's just strictly, I'm looking for just aesthetic beauty, do I have, for instance, do I, and I, so in that case, do I have curves that have breaks in them where instead of having these beautiful sinuous curves that your eye tends to follow in this graceful form, I've got places where your eye is interrupted so that I'm, I'm, I'm looking at, let's say I'm creating a vase or even a sculpture, and I'm really just after aesthetics. I'm really just looking for plain, uh, an expression of beauty. But I've got technical details that, 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 that conflict with that. I've got lines that I can look at and go, you know, this, the, the break's there. So instead of seeing this beautiful curve, I see these hiccups in the lines. And something else just to think about is, um, is, it, is the idea original or is it a copy? You know, have you really, if, if you're, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, but part, but part of this is, you know, presumably you want to develop your own voice or your own style or your own expression. And so if that's what you're striving for, 
if, that you really want to, you want to produce work that's unique to you, then part of it is just looking at it and say, okay, I've borrowed an idea, but have I, have I played with that idea? Have I tweaked it to make it mine? So when I look at the work, do I look at it and say, yeah, I can see me in that work? Or is it just a copy of something that somebody else did? And then a few final suggestions here that I have just in general. First of all is slow down and look critically at the work as you're making it. Is don't just wait till the end, if you're interested in doing this, don't just wait until the piece is finished and you take it out of the kill and you go, eh, you know, or not. But do it, get in the habit of looking at it as you're making it, looking at it critically. So after, while, before you take it off the wheel, if you're throwing it, look at it and saying, have I done everything I can at this point? When you're trimming the foot ring or you're trimming on it, have I, have I, have I achieved what I, what I wanted to right now? Because it's not going to get any better. So if you, if you do it as you go along, you have the chance to maybe at least change it or modify it as much as possible as you go along. There's an old rule that I like to think about um, that when you're starting to make something, you should be thinking then about how you're going to finish it. The minute you put the lump of clay on the wheel, you should be thinking about how you're going to glaze it. Which sounds a little weird, but, but part of the reason for that is, for instance, okay, I'm going to throw something on the wheel. I want to think about how am I going to glaze it, for example. So do I need a foot ring that I can hold the pot by in order to do the glazing? If I'm, depending on how I'm going to glaze it, maybe I need to hold it by the foot ring because I'm going to dip it or whatever I'm going to do. So have I, have, I, have I prepared the clay on the wheel so that I can get the proper foot ring out of it so that I'll be able to hold it by the foot ring when I want to glaze it? And, there may, and, and again, we were talking about consistency. If you're making a certain style of a piece, again, just referring to on the wheel, but it could be hand-building either way, the minute I start building it, it might suggest a certain mood or a certain, again, what's your purpose for the piece? What am I trying to suggest? So there might be, if, if, you haven't, if, we, if I have in mind, let's say I'm making a certain form and I want it to be green, in your mind, does that color suit this form? And are those two consistent with what you were trying to say? So I really try, when I'm making a piece, I really try to think the minute I pick up the clay while I'm wedging, I'm thinking about, okay, this is the general picture of what I have in mind that I'd like to make. How am I going to finish it? What colors? Am I going to stain it? Am I going to glaze it? How, what firing technique am I going to use? How am I going to finish this? Because that, I want to keep those things in mind the minute I start making it, because it might change some of my decisions that I make. For instance, give you an example. I mean, so I'm making something for wood firing and it's going into an anagama. I know right away I'm going to have to make thicker walls, probably. Because if it's going to go to cone 14, I've got, and I'm making, let's say I'm making bowls or a vase or something, I know I've got to make my walls thicker, probably, to survive the cone 14 or whatever. So right away I have to, I have to think about what am I, how am I going to be firing this piece? So do I need to make design changes in order to accommodate it? Um, there's another... There's another idea that, that people sometimes refer to and they say, read your bisque. And by that means, when you've, when you've bisque fired the piece, you still have options in terms of design and decoration. And it's possible, you might look at the bisque and, and realize that there's a weak feature. And you can compensate for it um, by the glazing. And it's, the old, it's what I call the, the Halley's Comet ploy. It's distraction, like somebody's looking at something and they're going, hey, what is it about? And you go, hey, look, it's Halley's Comet. <laughs> 
So the idea is you, you decorate the piece in a way that distracts the eye from whatever the weak feature is. So you certainly don't emphasize it. If you have a, I mentioned earlier, like I say you have a teapot and has this enormous spout and it turns out the spout's a little too big. Well, you wouldn't put one glaze on the spout that contrasts with the rest of the piece to focus on it even more. You might do something, you know, like at least blend it in with the body and emphasize some other part to distract the eye. And you, so there's a lot you can do with the glazing and the final surface decoration to compensate for what you might recognize as weak, weak features at the bisque stage. So you're not, you, have a, you have a last opportunity there to sort of modify it a little bit. The other thing I'd really recommend is work in series. Most, most, serious, most serious artists, they too work, which means you make more than one of something. And, you, and the idea, if you like the idea, the idea evolves and you modify it as you work in the series. So as you make one and whatever it is, and you try out your idea and then you, and then you critique it. And then you, you pick the good features that you want to keep and you, and you say, okay, there's some things I'd like to change. And then you make another one and you include those changes. And then you make another one. And e after each stage, you're critiquing it. And this way, you're refining the piece. And this way, you can get toward, if you have a, a picture in mind of what you'd like, you, you work toward it. And you don't expect to all happen in one piece or one firing. And it really is good. It really is. It's good for developing your eye because you're not looking at a, you're looking at the same piece, the same form over and over again. And after a while, you can start to see. And especially if you make a couple of them, then you can see the subtle differences. Maybe you look at one and you can't see. You know, you can't analyze. But if you put two side by side, you can say, you know, I like the placement of the handle. It's a quarter of an inch lower than on the first one but I like the placement of the handle on the second one. And so you say, maybe that's the direction I should go. Maybe the handle should be even lower. So you could explore that and say, well, how, you know, what is the range of locations for the handle relative to the height? And what's the best, what, what looks the best? Or what's the size of the best? And so by working in series, you really have the opportunity um, to sort of explore some of those things and work out some of these things. So I guess ultimately with all of this that I mentioned originally, initially, the goal of all of this is really to develop your own, what they call your own voice, meaning your own style. Something that reflects, that reflects your intentions, that reflects whether it's your personality or something you're trying to say, your message, an original style and a personal style. And so this is where, by working this way and doing this, this critiquing, you are, you're, you're, you're bringing yourself into it. You're, you're, you're deciding what you like, what satisfies you, and then that becomes an expression of you. That becomes, when somebody looks at it, you know how you can look at work and say, oh, I know who made that, because you recognize the features and you associate those with the person. And so ideally, that's what you're trying to do for yourself. You're trying to develop a distinctive style that is, that is the expression of you. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thanks for coming. Thank you. And one... The Potter's Roundtable is brought to you by Washington Street Studios and our patrons. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, give us a five-star review, and tell your friends. If you want to learn more about Washington Street Studios and shared studio memberships, please visit our website at www.hfclay.com. Thank you, and we'll see you again next time on The Potter's Roundtable.